I'd ask you to take a copy of God's word and turn to Isaiah 65. Two more chapters in Isaiah, that's all. Isaiah 65, it's page 623 in the Pew Bible, and uh, it's also on the inside cover of the bulletin. Without further ado, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Isaiah 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Acre shall a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, in vain or bear children for calamity. 
for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Thus ends God's holy word. Flower fades, grass withers. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word together now. Let's pray. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, would you allow my words and would you allow the thoughts of all of our hearts to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Do you have an Easter hangover? No, that's not a question about your alcohol consumption. If you need to talk about that, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. But what I mean is this. Did you experience a spiritual high on Easter only to quickly forget all of God's precious promises? Once the jelly beans and chocolate bunnies were gone, or maybe it's the honey-baked ham and the scalloped potatoes that gets you going. Once that's gone, did you forget the joys of Resurrection Sunday? Did you forget the death of death and the death of Christ or the power of his resurrection? Maybe not. Maybe Easter Monday was just as great for you. Maybe the dip in Sunday attendance last week didn't bother you. Maybe your faith is as strong today as it's ever been. And if so, good news. But there may be a day when you ask. The same question we asked on Easter Sunday from Isaiah 64, 12, the final verse of that chapter. Will you keep silent, O Lord? Will you afflict us so terribly? Again, maybe your faith is as strong now as it's ever been, or maybe you're burdened by our fallen world, the sinfulness you see even inside the church or even inside your own soul. Maybe you find yourself saying, rend the heavens and come down, O Lord. Or your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the good news is that God answers that prayer in Isaiah 65 and 66. The difficult news is that the coming of the kingdom, it involves both judgment and salvation. So we should seek the Lord while he may be found. But if we already have, then we should rest. We should delight in all of God's precious promises, his salvation, his future blessings, those are some of the reminders that Isaiah gives us today. We have three reminders today for a people who know the truth and who lament life's fallenness. The first one is this. God will definitely repay the rebellious. God will definitely repay the rebellious. You see it in verses 1 through 7. Again, remember context here. Isaiah is the voice of God's oppressed people has already said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's roughly equivalent to your kingdom come. It also reminds me of Habakkuk's prayer. God, can't you see, I'm summarizing, all this wickedness among your people. Aren't you going to do something about it? And God says, uh, yes, I've got some plans. Plans that shocked Habakkuk. Plans that may have shocked Israel in this case here. Verse 1, God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. 
may confuse us, but the nation not called by his name is most likely the, the Gentiles. Israel largely rejected their savior. And so the gospel goes out to the Gentiles eventually. God goes out to the alleys, to the backwater towns. There, there will be no empty seats at his wedding feast. It will be full. As Paul said, or would say from this perspective in Acts 13, verse 46, since you thrust the word of God aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And aren't we glad he did? Aren't we glad that God sought out Gentiles like us? I apologize if there's anyone of Jewish ancestry among us. I imagine most of us are not. But that said, God's point in Isaiah 65 is that the Gentiles were sought in part to show the Jews of old what they were missing out on. For example, verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day <clears throat> to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Now he's talking about the Jews. Uses this word rebellious again. You saw it in Isaiah 63. It appears at the very beginning of his prophecy. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. How were they rebellious? Well, Isaiah gives the litany of sins starting in verse 3. There are people who provoked me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. <clears throat> Verse 3 is probably talking about Ritualistic orgies in sacred gardens. They were guilty, among other things, of false worship, of sexual immorality. Verse 4 is probably talking about necromancy, as well as eating unclean food and doing so quite brazenly. A side note here, praise the Lord that we live in the new covenant and that we can experience the joy that is bacon. Can I get an amen? But at this time... God's people were still under the ceremonial law. Pork was unclean. Christ, of course, would later fulfill and abolish those regulations. But this was, at this time, a clear violation of God's law. And they knew it, and they pretended like it didn't matter. Verse 5, they say to themselves, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. What's going on here? One author explains that they are, quote, claiming a magical holiness from these perversions. It's really just arrogance, defiance, denial, covering up one of the most basic sins that still plagues us today, selfishness, wanting what I want when I want it. Has God been fooled by this, by this claim that they're holy, they're immune from the guilt of these sins? Hardly. The rest of verse 5, he says, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Verse 6, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. <clears throat> will God keep silent? Uh-uh. He will not. But just remember, that does not mean he will only judge the sins of others. Oh, he will. He will judge the world, all those who rebel against him and refuse to repent. He will do that. But right here, God is saying he will judge his holy covenant people who are acting unholy, 
who are acting in hypocrisy. You might say it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He will definitely repay the rebellious for their sins. One author reflecting upon verse 7 says, The justice of God is never out of proportion to man's crimes against him, but neither is it less than they deserve. Sin is cosmic treason, as we've said before. And what's the penalty for treason? I don't think they offer suspended sentences or probation for treason. You can check with a lawyer if you need me to, but you may think this is all pretty harsh. I'll admit it's weighty. It's serious. And how should we respond? Well, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the one who took your punishment, who lived, was risen for your righteousness, your justification, then this is both a warning and an invitation to you. This is God warning us that sin has consequences now and for eternity, but there is also a substitute, a savior for your sin. This is Isaiah 55, 6 remixed. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Just because you don't currently see signs of God's judgment in disapproval, doesn't mean you're getting away with it. You see, God's kindness, his, his patience, his long-suffering, his decision not to give, a, his decision not to just zap us the moment we sin, to give us time before he judges us in our sin. His kindness, Romans 2 says, is meant to lead us to repentance. And if you have trusted in Christ, what about, what about you? What should you do? Well, I would first say, have you wandered? Have you strayed? Have you grown apathetic about your walk with Christ? Then this is your opportunity to return, to rest in the Lord's ways once again. Maybe you're, you're walking with him, but you're discouraged. You seem to be trying hard and God is not rewarding you as much as you expect. First, I would say, stay tuned for the next two points. But second, remember that we are not living our best life now. Those who are actually living their best life now will be disappointed in the age to come. God will definitely repay the rebellious. But for those who repent, for those who seek Christ or have sought him, good news, there will be no double jeopardy. Jesus has already taken your punishment. He's also pardoned you. He's also promised you innumerable blessings and that leads to our next point, our second one. Yes, God first will definitely repay the rebellious. And secondly, God will definitely divide people into two distinct destinies. He will definitely divide people into two distinct destinies. You see it in verses 8 through 16. Let's look at verse 8 briefly. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I'm guessing that new wine, do not destroy it, saying is not familiar to us. It is talking about good grapes being found in a bad cluster. Think of it like roses among thorns, maybe not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, kind of similar phrases, best I can do. But if you find good grapes amidst a bad cluster, you don't throw out the good ones, right? You just throw out the bad ones. And God is saying that Israel, whom he called a bad, a wild vineyard in Isaiah 5, 
they still have some good grapes. There are still good seeds in this batch. There is still a remnant according to God's grace. There are still some who have not bowed the knee to Baal or one of the other false gods. Number one, this should give us hope. You see, we are never whom Elijah thought he was. We are never the only one that remains faithful to God. There are always others, as God reminded Elijah when he was having his divine pity party there, his, his prophetic pity party. That's what I meant to say. Secondly, this, this should make us humble, lest we judge others too quickly, lest we assume that someone's background or their upbringing brings doom upon them. It, it gives them no hope, lest we assume that they are like the worst example of those kinds of people, that ethnicity, that state, that profession, fans of that football team, whatever you might say. There is a faithful remnant within unfaithful Israel. And that should remind us there is always hope for anyone, regardless of their background. There is a faithful remnant within faithful Israel. Look at verse 9. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. There's a geography to redemption, someone once said. God will restore haunted places like the valley of Achor. He'll make the promised land a place of delight, of goodness, of rest once again. And where is the dividing line between those who will get these blessings and those who, who don't? Is it between Jews and Gentiles? No. Is it along some other racial lines? Also no. Barry Webb says this, the demarcation line, it's not ethnic or political, but personal and confessional. By political, I think he means national. In other words, it's not like this. The gospel is for this nation and not for this nation. No, it's worldwide. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. For anyone from any nation who calls upon the Lord. <clears throat> the way Isaiah says it, is there are two groups. God's chosen, as he says in verse 9, or as he says as well in verse 9, his servants. That's one group. And the other group is you who forsake me. You might say it's those whom God chooses and those who do not choose God. Now, you may not like this word chosen. You may wonder how it is that we can know that we're chosen. Well, John's gospel explains it pretty simply. In chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And then three chapters later, verse 44, it says, No one can come to the Father who sent me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yes, the chosen will eventually choose God. It's not like they're robots and it's all uh, left up to fate and chance and, and things like that. No, the chosen will choose, but it's only because God has first chosen us, because he's drawn us to himself. As 1 John 4.19 puts it, we love because he first loved us. But again, there's this dividing line, those who are chosen by God, who respond in saving faith, and those who do not choose God, who never repent, no matter how many chances God gives, and the difference between their fates, their destinies, it's staggering, it's significant. Verse 11, 
But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, it's capitalized because it was a known false god of that day, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, also capitalized, same idea. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. It's not something that anyone consciously wants, but it's what some ultimately choose by rejecting God's offer of salvation. And the contrast between that destiny and the other choice, it's even clearer in the following verses. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 13, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. And then the next verse seems to say that Israelites who forsake God, their name will become like a curse word, a byword. You ever heard the expression, you give so-and-so a, a bad name? That's what's going on here. Think of it this way, by our failure, God's people in this day and age, by our failure to live as God calls us to, to not fulfill that third membership vow, we can give Christians a bad name. We can break the third commandment, take the Lord's name in vain, not treating his name with reverence if we bear the name of Christ irreverently by our speech, by our lifestyle. That's not all he says here. We're not all doomed to hopelessness. No, it says for those who swear by the God of truth, who pursue his ways imperfectly yet repentantly in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. God says, quote, the former troubles are forgotten and hid from my eyes in verse 16. It's like that old J.R.R. Tolkien line, all the sad things will come untrue. In fact, it says we won't even be able to remember them. Maybe it's better to say it this way. Quote, the good, the joy and fullness of life in the new heavens and new earth, it will so outweigh the evil that the latter will have no opportunity to rise and haunt us. And my friends, we need this reminder. In fact, we need it often. You see, Psalm 73 is a cautionary tale of forgetting God's blessings and God's benefits, forgetting that those who reject God have a different faith than us who hope in him. The author, Asaph, of Psalm 73, he confessed that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. How different would our lives be if we stopped being envious of the ungodly, of those who don't have hope in Christ? Would we instead be compassionate, ready to help those who are hurting, whether they're hurting because of their own sin or hurting because of the sin of those who are close to them? And I want to be clear, some of that is happening. People are volunteering Pregnancy resource centers or shelters for single mothers, shelters like Springs Rescue Mission. They're spending the second season of their life ministering to at-risk youth or being active in adoption and foster care. That is happening. I'm not sure it's my job to tell you exactly who's doing what, but it does seem like a good idea to tell you it's happening. 
by God's grace. Praise the Lord for that. And I do think it's my job as well to say thank you. <laughs> thank you to those of you who are doing that, who are letting your light shine before men so that others might see your good works and give glory not to you, but to our Father in heaven. Thank you. Those of you who are serving the needy instead of being envious of the arrogant. And I want to say one more word about envy. Because our failure to see our future blessings causes us to be way too envious, way too discontented with what God has given. Now, maybe this is only a personal confession, but if so, I hope it'll be instructive. For various reasons, I'm not on Instagram. I am on Twitter, for better or worse. But it just seems to me that Instagram, a host of other social media in general, are engines potentially for envy. And here's the thing. They know it. <laughs> the people who run these websites, they know it. Somebody told me this recently. If you try to unfollow a bunch of people at one time on Instagram because you're tired of lusting after exotic cars or fine dining or custom home remodels or the perfect body image, which may be the result of surgery or Photoshop or an unhealthy devotion to diet and exercise. If you're trying to stop envying those things, Instagram won't let you. They'll only let you unfollow a certain number of people at one time. They want you to stay addicted. Envy is good for their business model, even though it's not good for your soul. Envy is good for their business model. And on that note, kids, your parents are not limiting your screen time because they hate you. Even Jennifer Garner's kids are not allowed to be on social media. Last week, the well-known actress told the Today Show, Show me the articles that prove that social media is good for teenagers, and then we'll have that conversation. That's what she tells her kids. Her kids, on, on the one hand, probably have really expensive clothes and toys and vacations, yes. They don't have Instagram. They don't have social media. Not even her 17-year-old. And if I can make a seamless transition from Jennifer Garner to John Owen... Kill the envy in your heart or it will be killing you. It'll distract you from all the good blessings in your life. The good blessings that God has promised, but, but not to everyone. Not to those who reject him. There's two destinies. By God's grace, we who've trusted in Christ have hit the jackpot. Now about those blessings, our last point, thirdly, finally is this. God will definitely reward his remnant with delight. You see this in verses 17 to 25. Again, we have different destinies. And the destiny for those who are in Christ, it's staggering. It's wonderful. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No, shall be, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. God's still answering that question. Will you keep silent? Will you afflict us so terribly? And thankfully, judgment beginning at the household of God, that is not the full answer. It's not the full story. One author says the rest of God's answer 
is that he will show himself to the multitude that his church, though in a present state, very pitiful, will be restored to prosperity. What you see here in these verses, it's, it's breathtaking. It's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And Derek Kidner says the point here is to kindle our hope, not to arouse or feed our curiosity. In other words, if you want to read the details about, about what this means for the end times, debates between dispensationalists and amillennials and all that, and I have a thought or two on that, but I'll point you in the right direction if you want that. Derek Thomas, his commentary. But if that's all you want, as you read all this, you want to pinpoint the fine details, you're kind of missing the point. The point here is to blow you away with joy and wonder. If these are something other than literal descriptions that we read here, let me just say the literal fulfillment will certainly not disappoint us. You get joyous negatives and joyous positives thrown throughout here. Verse 19, there's no more weeping. Verse 20, there will be no death. Verses 21 and 22, it says no more exile. No more watching someone else enjoy the house that you built. You will reap the fruit of your labors. The curse that makes work such a drudgery will be lifted. His blessings, they flow far as the curse is found. One author summarizes the final five verses by saying, in the new heavens and new earth, we'll have a life of fruitfulness and fulfillment, uh, a life that will be free from the trauma of pain and suffering, and a life where all creation exists in perfect harmony and communion. Regarding that last point, perfect harmony and communion, look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer, the Lord says. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Does that sound like Eden before the fall or after the fall? Does it sound like a closer walk with thee or like those who hide because they're afraid? Does it sound like our experience now or does it sound like what we only barely dare to hope for? In words that are similar to Isaiah 11 verses 6 and 9, he also tells us that somehow these carnivorous animals. There's just going to be hanging out together and that the, the small children will just hang out with them too. Now, moms, I want all of you to take a time out and stop being scared about that if you can. It's okay to laugh, joking a little. Because the point is just that we won't be scared. We won't have any fear. Instead, we will feel like it's a perfect day at the beach the perfect day on the slopes, the perfect day in a quiet cabin with your favorite book or the perfect day in a football stadium with all your friends. I could keep going. The bottom line is insert your perfect dream vacation or whatever here. Because instead of fear, you will feel like it's the perfect day that you never want to end. And again, that's just it. It won't end. The sun won't set. The alarm won't go off. The office will not call with an emergency. One day, the perfect day will be here and it will never end. Apostle Paul thought about all this. He said, therefore, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? In other words, how shall we now live? We should rejoice at least as much as we lament. We should be grateful 
Instead of being envious, we should be generous because God has been generous to us, generous with our time, treasure, generous, not envious, not jealous, not angry, because we have blessings that are far better than chocolate bunnies. We have an inheritance that blows Instagram away. We have, to use more of Peter's words, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what's waiting for us. The perfect day, perfectly guaranteed, which will never fade away. Think of that next time you wake up. And see if it doesn't begin to feel like Easter Sunday every day. Let's pray. God, you're good. Your gifts to us are good. Help us to cherish them and not take them for granted. Help us to taste and see that you are good. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.